All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line again, I've got Ted Snyder. He writes for us at the Institute and at antiwar.com. And this one is called, With Upgraded Missiles, Ukraine Prepares to Strike Russian Heartland Despite Assurances. And so welcome to the show, Ted. How you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing, Scott? I'm all right, man. Appreciate you joining Good. us here. So uh, I'd love to be here. It seems like a year ago, Biden said, nah, look, we're only going to give him this much help, but not that much help. And then he yep. just keeps moving the line, tanks yep. and planes and longer and longer range rockets and artillery yep. and this and that. Now we got the uh, Brits doing their part. So catch us up to date, yep. please, if you could. Yeah, I mean, Scott, <clears throat> I mean, I remember Ukrainian officials saying a few months ago when they were asking for bigger weapons and the West was saying no. And he actually said, you know, we've heard this before. Just be patient. The West always says no. And then you wait a bit and we get them. And it happened with the, <clears throat> the <clears throat> excuse me, the HIMARS long range rocket launching system. It happened with tanks. It happened with fighter jets. Um, the West keeps saying no and they keep getting it. And there seemed to be this acknowledged red line blinken had talked about this red line before where you don't want to give them something with a range far enough that would hit inside russia or inside crimea um, as opposed to hitting russian occupied territory in eastern ukraine because of the worry that if you strike inside russia you promote russia to escalate and of course just like the states you know russia has a nuclear policy that says that if the very existence of the state is threatened they could hypothetically use a nuclear weapon um so they've been careful not to give them weapons that could provoke that kind of response and yet um just the other day um earlier i guess this week or late last week the the british defense secretary ben wallace stood up in front of the house of commons and revealed that that um long-range um storm shadow cruise missiles um, are he said are now going into or are in Ukraine. We know now they're in Ukraine because they've used them. Um, <clears throat> what's what's different about these is that when the state sent the HIMARS, I hope I'm saying that right, um, long range missiles into Ukraine, they actually modified them, Scott, so that they couldn't fire as far as they are actually capable. They capped them at like 50 mm -hmm. miles because that let them strike into the Donbass, but not into Crimea or Russia. But the missiles that um, that Britain just sent, it's disputed how far they can go, but they can go at least 155 miles. That's enough to strike inside Crimea. And according to some military analysts I've read, it's enough to strike inside Russia. So um, Ukraine now has the capacity to strike Russian territory with the cruise missile. And then, so this comes on, I guess they would say, the heels of months of reports of, and from all different wide and varied incredible sources of sabotage and other missions, drone strikes, I guess, especially mm -hmm, mm -hmm. inside Russia and inside Crimea as well. I just read, well, 
a tweet this morning that said that there's a railway in Crimea that mm -hmm. was, uh, I think, hit by a drone. Yeah. So, so this is the thing, you know, when, when the White House was asked what they thought about, first of all, let's get, let's get one thing really clear. Um, we, we keep saying Britain did this, but Britain made it really clear that this was done, quote, with the incredibly supportive United States. This is not something that was done. I, I made it sound like Biden had drawn this line and the UK crossed it. That's not what happened at all. Um, according to the UK, the US was totally aware of this and completely supportive of it. And, you know, when Biden was asked, um, what about, you know, firing these into Crimea or into Russian territory, um, the, the British replied that they'd received assurances from the Ukrainian government that they'll be used only within sovereign Ukrainian land, not inside Russia. And Biden said in a, in a kind of remarkable statement um, that it's OK because Zelensky has never compromised on his promise not to strike inside Russian territory. Well, that's just blindness, because first of all, as you said, they not only have struck within Russian territory, but there was a whole series of um, communications intercepts reported on by the Washington Post recently that we can talk about, we should definitely talk about, where, where it was very clear that Zelensky wanted to strike inside Russian territory. Um, so the, the, this, the, the, the missiles arrive in um, Ukraine, and this happens, as you said, one week after Russia claimed that there was actually a drone strike or an attempted drone strike um, on the Kremlin. Which, which Russia says was an attempt to assassinate Putin. We can talk about that more too, but, but the importance of it in, in the context of what you're saying, Scott, is how can you say we're okay giving Ukraine long-range missiles because they've promised not to do strikes inside Russia when the drone strike shows that they're prepared to do strikes not only within Russia, within Moscow, right in the heart of Moscow on the, on, on the Kremlin in, in what at least Russia says maybe or maybe not, was was an attempt to assassinate um, Putin. But we've we've also seen, as you said, that there have been a pile of other strikes, um, not just the one you're referring to today, but um, there's been, I think it was the, um, who was it, was the, the Washington Post, or the New York Times that referred to a string of drone attacks deep inside Russia. And, and those include, you know, famously, there was the two attacks on, on the Engels Air Base back in December of 2022. But on, on May 10th, there was a drone strike that hit a Russian military ground. On May 4th, there was a drone strike that blew up an oil refinery. I'm, I'm not talking, by the way, about things inside Crimea or inside the Donbass. There's been tons of strikes the famous strike on the bridge in Crimea. There's been tons of strikes in Crimea. I'm talking in the heart of Russia. Um, there's been these strikes on on air bases, on oil refineries, on training grounds, and over the Kremlin. So it's 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 almost it's almost unbelievable. It's incredible for Biden to say that that Zelensky's no one shows so, no signs of breaking his promise not to strike inside Russia when there's been like four, five, six strikes inside Russia. Yep. Um, Seymour Hirsch commented on this recently by by saying that, you know, when when Biden said that that Zelensky's never broken his word to strike inside Russia, he said it's just like blindness that shows that at least within the White House that, that Zelensky can do no wrong. So they've actually now provided Zelensky with the weapons to do the kinds of things he's been talking about. Um, and as I said, there have been these, um, these, these intercepted... Um, messages also that that showed that that Zelensky's considered frequently 
um, striking inside Russia. Do, do, do you want to talk about that for a second? Let me just tell you what I'm talking about with that, because it's kind of striking, if if your listeners are aware of it. Can we do that? For sure. Second? Well, I, I wanted to, I guess, go ahead and chime in here a couple of things real quick, which mm. is, first of all, if this was just a war between Ukraine and Russia, I guess I wouldn't give a damn if Ukraine was hitting inside Russia. It's not that it's a moral outrage. It's just that my government, my country are implicated in these strikes inside Russia is the big point here. Um, you know, obviously the very muddy origins of the war on both sides and, you know, the guilt on both sides for the origin of the war play in there as well. But that's especially the point here. And then, Scott, it's an, it's an important, it's a very important point you raise. Because in fact, just as part of that real quick is a year ago when the war started, the secretary of defense had his list of rules in the Washington Post. Yes. And rule number two was keep the war yeah. geographically confined inside Ukraine. Yeah. So with yeah. strikes on Crimea, we're already pushing it because Crimea is not part of Ukraine. You know, this is and obviously, you know, different interpretations of that truth can lead to very interpretations of what kind of violence should be perpetrated there by American forces as well or American backed forces, I should say. So things have changed like this. This is this is never the war that was supposed to have been. Right. I mean, the, the war that was supposed to have been Russia planned a very quick strike. Ukraine feeling that strike was very quickly ready to sit down from the table and negotiate a settlement. I mean, what was supposed to happen is Russia was to go in quickly and accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, which was stopping Ukraine from joining NATO and from attacking the Donbass. And very quickly, Ukraine sat down, was ready to sign that the states and Britain stopped them. And this became this horrific war of attrition where the goalposts keep changing and more and more weapons keep getting sent. And as Russia said, Russia says all the time, send all the weapons you want. It's not going to change anything. It's just going to make this longer and bloodier and more horrible, but it's not going to change anything. And then, as you said, Scott, and it's, and it's an important point, is that it, it's one thing that this was a war between Russia and Ukraine, but it's not. And I, I was speaking to a very... Um, eminent military historian <clears throat> and Russian expert the other day, you know, he said to me, and I don't want to misquote him, so I don't have him in front of me, but, but he said to me, you know, Zelensky's game plan has always been to draw NATO into this as much as possible, right? Um, that, that that's the game plan. And, and having, having missiles now that can strike inside Russia, this the dangers this draws NATO into it because if you know if you do strike and and keep in mind that 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 the the the, the Russian government has said repeatedly, um, we know that Ukraine doesn't make these decisions alone. We know that Ukraine is at least dependent on the U.S. for their targeting information, and possibly even dependent on the U.S. for picking their targets. So if 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 Ukraine fires a storm shadow missile into Russia, then Russia is going to say not only was this a UK weapon provided with American approval, possibly American choice of targets and certainly American choice of targeting information or provision of a targeting information, then you risk this really dangerous thing that you've now got strikes inside of Russia that could trigger a nuclear response. And Russia seeing the the the, um, the 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 party who did it as not just being Ukraine as you said Scott but as being NATO and and then what have you got right then you've got a potential nuclear war between Russia and NATO which by the way is what Russia was afraid of all along all along Russia's fear coming into this war was this three piece scenario and that was 
what happens if Ukraine attacks Donbass, which they're planning, Ukraine joins NATO, right? So now there's a war between the states and NATO, and Ukraine goes back to reacquiring nuclear weapons or something like that, where you end up with now a, not a, a conventional war with Ukraine, but a nuclear war with NATO. That was Russia's fear all along. Because, because Zelensky said like two days before the attack that Ukraine would consider reacquiring nuclear weapons, right? So Putin's nightmare all along was, what if we have a war with Ukraine, who's a NATO member, so that means a NATO war, and there's a nuclear weapon, then we could have a non-conventional war with NATO, right? And that's the danger exactly right now. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's what that's the fear is that if Ukraine fires a missile into Moscow to trigger some kind of nuclear response and, and Moscow doesn't see this as a Ukrainian act, but a NATO act, then you have the potential for a NATO war with Ukraine, which is insanity. And, yeah. and why Biden's playing with this stuff and why Britain's playing with this stuff, it's insanity. Well, and it's not even over Ukraine. It's Sorry. over the Donbass, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it's over who rules the Donbass, which... You know, most Americans, the vast majority, probably better than 90 percent, couldn't find Ukraine on a map. But ask them to find the Donbass on a map. Um, right. So but, you know, when, when you when you and I talk about this, Scott, like it's between it's about it's about the Donbass, because this was all about, you know, Ukraine's refusal to implement the Minsk Accords and the Donbass. But in, in a way, in a way, the states isn't really doing this because they care about the Donbass. I mean, they're really doing this because they they were the were the after the at Cold War, they were the unchallenged leaders of a unipolar world. And then in 2014, when they when they dared to show that they can launch wars, not just to defend themselves, but launch wars and conduct coups wherever they want because it doesn't suit their policy. And they go into Ukraine and they pull off this coup in 2014. And for the very first time, for the very first time in this unipolar world, Putin says, no more. And he takes action. He annexes Crimea. And the states is like, what? Um, and and this, this, whole, this whole war is really triggered by America saying to Russia, you can't challenge our unipolar world. So it is about the Donbass, but it's much bigger than the Donbass. The Donbass became the battlefield where Russia was no longer prepared to follow the states in the unipolar world. And the state said, we're not going to let you do that. And so you get a war in Ukraine. Right. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs, No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and Four of Mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. All right, so 
don't know if you saw this. It was just going around Twitter this morning from a Bulgarian news source, although it seemed credibly written, about talks on the stationing of F-35s in Finland now that they have joined NATO. Mm -hmm. And they want to permanently station F-35s. I forgot how many miles they said it was from St. Petersburg there, but Mm -hmm. how many minutes. And this is... I understand what they mean when they say sleepwalking to war, and I hate that because it makes it sound like it's also accidental. But what they really are trying to emphasize with that, I think, is the stupidity. Like, hey, guys, you know what we should do next? We should put some F-35s in there. That'll deter them. And then they all just agree with each other, and they all just keep doing things, and yet it's complete idiocy. They're all just George W. Bush up and down the line. They have no idea what they're doing or what the consequences could be, and they don't care. And they just think a nuclear war is impossible, so we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I don't I don't like the word sleepwalking because it makes it it makes it sound like you're just sort of stumbling into something. And this is U.S. policies. Right. These are these are not this isn't sleepwalking. This is stupid walking, but it's not sleepwalking. Um, and, you know, I didn't see that Twitter. I haven't I haven't looked at anything this this morning. But, you know, when when Finland first talked about a section to NATO and at first they talked about, you know, not stationing weapons there and then they seem to go back. Well, maybe they could. Um but this is the point, like this is the point that 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 Russia's sitting there since, you know, since the end of the Cold War with NATO moving closer and closer. And that's not just a political thing where you draw a color on the map where, you know, you have a country you color it in blue now or whatever because it's NATO. As NATO moves in complete violation, by the way, not just violations not to move NATO, but after NATO started to move. There were promises not to station permanent troops and stuff on certain, you know, territories. And as the U.S. breaks those promises with permanent bases in Poland and and missiles in Romania and and talk of F-35s in Finland, you know, Russia is sitting there and and this stuff is moving closer and closer and closer to their borders. The state says NATO is a defensive force. Nonsense. Ask Yugoslavia or Libya or you know Iraq or if you want to if it's a defensive force and and defensive force you know against whom there is no Cold War there is no more Warsaw Pact there is no Soviet Union these things move closer and closer to Russia's borders and there's talk about you know Georgia and Ukraine this is not sleepwalking and by the way even if it was sleepwalking a couple of dozen of the leading U.S. American, not other countries, of the leading American experts have been warning U.S. presidents since 1990, don't do this. <laughs> they don't encroachment to Russia. Every Russian president, if you hate Putin, hate Putin. I don't care. Gorbachev, Yeltsin, they loved Yeltsin. Putin, they've all said stop NATO's encroachment east. When Putin stood up in 2007 or 2008 at the Munich Security Conference and said, this is a red line for us. You've got to start moving NATO like into Georgia and Ukraine. Gorbachev stood up and said, this may be something for you, but this, this we're not hearing anything new from Putin. I've said that. We've all said that. Like this, is, So if they're sleepwalking, Scott, people have been waking them up for 35 years. It's not sleepwalking. It's yeah. stupid walking. Yeah. And look, from the very <laughs> beginning, uh, you know, in the 1990s, it was obviously Zbigniew Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger and a lot of heavyweights supported it. Although Kissinger had his reservations compared to Brzezinski, I guess. But so many people opposed it, including, and this is the one that always got me, was 
Paul Nitsa, the guy that wrote NSC 68, mm-hmm. that said that we have to take over the entire planet in the name of not just containment, but rolling back the Soviet Union. Here in the mid-90s, he's saying, yeah, well, we did that. We rolled them back. Now they don't exist anymore. So mm-hmm. why would mm-hmm. we do this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, these are some real hawks. Bob McNamara, who killed all those Vietnamese, was like, man, we should not be... Uh, sticking our thumb in the eye of the Russians who overthrew the commies for us. This is crazy. And of course, you know, George Kennan and, you know, more famously, and so many others, though, um, you know, Susan Eisenhower, the president's granddaughter, put together a form letter, a group letter that was signed by like 70 people, including four star admirals and generals and diplomats, you know, going back to World War II. American ambassador to Russia. This yeah. is, you know, this is, this is, this is also like Gates and Burns and Matlock. Like, like you can go down the list, Kennan, you can go down the list of experts. There's been, there's been an almost universal choir and they knew this when they were talking about it in the nineties. I mean, in the nineties, they were consistently told you, you cannot make a defensive pact that brings in all of Europe, excludes Russia, butts it up to its border. And then say, don't worry about it. Well, don't worry about it. If don't worry about it, why won't you let us in? <laughs> and why are you butting up to a border? They, they'd been told constantly, and 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 they'd also been told, Scott, not only that NATO encroachment east was, you know, was a provocation. They'd been specifically told that Ukraine in particular. There's reams of documentation of these guys telling U.S. presidents, you know, whatever you do, Ukraine in particular is a, is a red line. So it, there's no sleepwalking here. There's provocation, 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 right? And and now and now sending in these long-range missiles um, is a is a further provocation. I don't know what happened in that drone in Kremlin. We know it's real. Um, the New York Times, Reuters, they've all verified the the video. Who exactly did it? Well, we don't know. We know that the Russians are saying that Ukraine did it, and we know that for the Russians, this is changing their language. This is a game changer, an attempt on the life of the president. We can talk about that if you want to, but this is this is a game changer. Um, well, without knowing the, for sure, I mean, I think it's obvious that, or I guess the obvious interpretation would be that the Ukrainians did it, but that it wasn't a legitimate assassination attempt against Putin. It was a symbolic strike for public relations reasons. Yeah, some worse, people you know, they set that. the roof on fire. Yeah. So, Ukraine says they didn't do it. Um, some people who think Ukraine did it say it was symbolic. Some people who think Ukraine did it say it was players that Zelensky didn't have control of. And some people say it was Ukraine deliberately doing it. Um, you know, but but it certainly wasn't important. a serious attempt on the life of the Russian president, though. So so Russia says it was. And and I mean, that's what their state their statement said. Their press statements said we consider this assassination. Attempt. And to me, Scott, by the way, what's scary about that is, is and this is not talked about much. Um, in fact, it's really not talked about at all. When when Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett was trying to negotiate between Russia and Ukraine, there's been some, almost no mainstream media coverage, but some coverage of of Bennett saying we were we were on our way to an agreement and the U.S. blocked it because they didn't want peace. That got some coverage. What didn't get so much coverage is that at the time, according to Bennett, okay, I don't know, according to Bennett. Zelensky was terrified that the Russians were going to kill him right from the start. He made that famous statement, you know, I'm not afraid I'm not leaving Ukraine. But he did not make that statement until Naftali Bennett said to Putin, can I get an assurance from you that you won't assassinate Zelensky? 
and Putin said, I won't kill Zelensky, I promise. Then, then according to Bennett, he calls Zelensky and says, I got a promise from Putin that you won't get assassinated. And within five minutes, Zelensky goes public and says, I'm not afraid of getting killed because he's been promised he wouldn't be, right? But here's <laughs> the thing. Here's the thing. Russia promised they wouldn't kill Zelensky. That promise is off the table. Okay? Because now they think Zelensky's, Zelensky's tried to kill him. And so now you get um, people like um, Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov saying very cautiously, we'll take a wide variety of considerations of what we might do. The U.S. ambassador, sorry, the Russian ambassador of the States, um, Anatoly Antonov, says, you know, we're going to think very hard about how we respond to the assassination attempt. We're going to do something very, very measured. But then he said, and I am quoting now, how would Americans react if a drone hit the White House, the Capitol, the Pentagon? The answer is obvious for any politician or your average citizen the punishment will be harsh and inevitable. What's that punishment? I don't know, but here's former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev saying after today's terrorist attack, there are no options left except the physical elimination of Zelensky and his clique. And then the Speaker of the Russian Parliament, who's close to Putin, says any attack on the president is attack on Russia. There can no longer be any negotiations. We'll demand the use of weapons that are capable of stopping destroying the Kiev terrorist regime. So if Russia's serious, the, the promise to kill Zelensky's off the table. Interestingly, Scott, I do not want to make a connection here, <laughs> but, but it's probably to, totally coincidental. The next day Zelensky left the country for an extended tour of Europe. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like they said we killed Zelensky and Zelensky left. I don't think there's a connection there, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an odd connection. But then the other thing, you know, that, that we've talked about, too, is these strikes inside Russia and, and Biden and UK saying we're fine with Zelensky's assurance he won't strike inside Russia, despite the drone, because he's always kept his word that he doesn't want to strike inside Russia. And then just really quickly, you know, we get these these reports um, from U.S. intelligence that come out in The Washington Post where, where Zelensky says to his leading general, and I'm quoting, he complains that we do not have the long-range missiles capable of reaching Russian troops deployment in Russia. And later on, an, an intercepted digital communication with Zelensky suggesting that the Ukraine, quote, conduct strikes in Russia. As, er, as recently as, as February, just a couple of months ago, um, Zelensky saying to um, Zelensky, I'm probably saying his name wrong, his top general, um, that quote Ukraine attack that Ukraine should attack unspecified deployment locations in Rostov and Western Russia. So, so Biden says that Zelensky has never gone back in his word not to attack inside Russia. We have documented records that Zelensky has encouraged attacks inside Russia. We have, and now we've got missiles that can attack inside at least Crimea or Russia. And as you said, Scott, earlier and importantly, the West can say all it wants, and America says all the time. Ukraine makes these decisions, Ukraine and Crimea is Ukraine. It doesn't matter what the state says. From from the Russian perspective, Crimea is not Ukraine, Crimea is Russia. And as as the realist foreign policy guys will tell you in these cases, all that matters is what Russia thinks. If if you use a missile and attack Crimea and Russia thinks Crimea is Russia, then Russia thinks you just attacked Russia. Now Russia has to decide whether that you know, merits a nuclear response or not. It doesn't have to merit a nuclear response, right? Russia has just 
piles of forces they haven't used in this war yet. It's, it can create an escalated response. Well, you know, Ted, I get a lot of mixed signals about Crimea and what America's policy is or what mm-hmm. America thinks Ukraine's policy should be toward Crimea. What's the latest on that, do you think? Well, I think the mixed signals are the policy. The mixed signals are the U.S. policy because because what the U.S. what the U.S. wants to do now, I, I think the U.S. legally does consider Crimea to be part of Ukraine. They never admitted that Ukraine that Crimea was part of Russia. Um, it's it's important to remember though that that Crimeans, by a very large majority, consider themselves to be Russians and, and want to be part of Russia. And there's and there's and I know you see in the mainstream press that this has never been you know, showing in a, in a referendum. It's not true. Referendum after referendum, you know, think a parliamentary act after parliamentary act shows that Crimea wants part of Russia. So what the U.S. policy is exactly what you said. It is mixed signals. They, they want to say on the one hand, Blinken says Crimea is a red line that would provoke um, Putin. But, you know, Victoria Nuland says that um, that that Crimea should be demilitarized and, and Washington supports Ukrainian attacks on military targets in Crimea. So we have two different people saying two different things. Why? Because in their fantasies, the U.S. would like to see Russia pushed out of Crimea, but all of their generals and intelligence tell them that can't happen. You can pour whatever weapons you want into Ukraine. They don't have the military capacity to take Crimea, first of all. And second of all, what would happen if they did? It would just trigger a nuclear response from Russia. So they can't take Crimea. So what do they want to do? It's an insane policy, Scott. That They want to have this Ukrainian counteroffensive, if it ever happens, might happen soon. They want this Ukrainian counteroffensive to not take Crimea because they can't, but they want to scare Crimea. They want to, they want to advance enough that Putin says, oh no, they could take Crimea, but not enough that they actually trigger a response by taking Crimea and then hope that a now terrified Putin is prepared to sit down and negotiate because losing the Donbass is one thing, but losing Crimea is another. So they want to have this like really finely calibrated attack Crimea to X, but never to X plus one. Um, and so they want this confusion. They want they want to be saying we can take Crimea. We're going to take Crimea while they're also in their military planning saying we're not going to take Crimea. Was that clear? Did I just make it even more confusing? Yeah, no, I hear you. It just sounds completely <laughs> nonsensical, not because you it's, said it wrong, but just because they think that they're about to put Putin in a position of severe weakness and they're going to he's going to come to the table like the Taliban in July of 2011 and Petraeus's promises to come in and beg for uh, peace on yeah. America and Ukraine's happen. terms, huh? It's not going to happen. I mean, it's stupid for three reasons. One is they one is they can't take Crimea. Two, they're not going to scare. If, if if they got close to taking Crimea, the, the response would be catastrophic. So first of all, it can't happen. Second of all, it's a very dangerous policy. And the third thing is, is um, and again, I don't want to misquote them because I don't have it in front of me. But several months ago, talking to Anatole Levin about this, and, and, and he said to me that, that that's a very fine calibration. You're asking a very mixed up Ukrainian army to do it. Very fine calibration to take all these different tanks and vehicles and soldiers and planes, take all of them and calibrate it so finely that you can attack this far, but don't cross the line. That's a very big ask. And, and what happens if you 
do cross the line. I mean, it's a very dangerous. And, and again, I hope I'm not misquoting Anatole Levin, but but what? But it's true. You know, it's like, you have to remember, I'm not a military analyst. I'm a pacifist. I know nothing about military. But the, the people I read say that to do, first of all, an offensive is more difficult than a defensive. Russia's defending Crimea. They've got they've got trenches so wide that you can't drive a tank across it. And then a mile later, they've got another one. And then they've got jagged tooth walls. And then they've got tens of thousands. It's, they're hugely entrenched. It's very, very, very difficult, right? Um, but then you've got to coordinate. You can't just send your tanks and send your planes and your people like you do playing the game of risk, right? They've all, all got to be intricately connected and coordinated. Plus, Ukraine is doing this with a hodgepodge of equipment. They're not equipment that was designed to function together. They've got Polish planes and British tanks. And, and, and so you're asking them to coordinate. And then you're saying, not only do I want you to coordinate that, but I want you to coordinate that so fine that you can attack and push Crimea, but don't push quite too far. That's a big request. So, and, 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 and as you said, it's, it won't work. And if it did work, it could trigger a, a, a massive Russian escalation. So, so you get this really mixed up U.S. policy where they're saying we want to make it look like we can take Crimea. We're going to say we support taking Crimea. We know we can't really take Crimea. So push it just far enough to scare Putin to make him negotiate. It's a pipe dream, but that's the policy. All right, you guys, that's Ted Snyder. Thank you very much, Ted, for your insight as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. You guys can find Ted at antiwar.com and at libertarianinstitute.org. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.